GQ's Mad Influence is presented by Moet et Chandon. Life's memorable moments must be Moet et Chandon. This is Mad Influence, a podcast about the long arc of creativity. Conversations with artists, writers, directors, and actors who've got long, fascinating creative careers. And that describes my guest today, Barry Jenkins. He's the director and co-writer of the Academy Award-winning film Moonlight and the writer and director of a new movie, If Beale Street Could Talk, an adaptation of the James Baldwin novel, and one that, like Moonlight, is getting its fair share of critical praise and Oscar attention. If Beale Street Could Talk tells the tale of Fanny and Tish, a young black couple in love whose lives and futures are thrown into chaos when Fanny is accused of and jailed for a crime he did not commit. It's told through the point of view of Tish, who tries to clear Fanny's name. It's set squarely in the early 1970s in Harlem and the West Village, but in its portrait of a perverted criminal justice system feels strikingly contemporary. It's also a film that lingers with the viewer long after the credits roll, and it shows Jenkins at the top of his form, or I should say of several forms, as a writer adapting a seminal text, as a visual stylist who seems to be in love with imagery, as a thoughtful shaper of mood and message, of music and light. Barry Jenkins, welcome to Mad Influence. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I want to talk first about the source material for the new movie first. James Baldwin has not been adapted into uh, English language before. It was The book was his fifth novel, I think. It came out in mm -hmm. 1974. Mm -hmm. It is unflinching, lyrical, wrenching, intimate, honest. It's essentially a tragedy with romantic intentions. Mm -hmm. When fans or critics talk about film adaptations, they often use the term a faithful adaption, which with the expectation that the film honors the original spirit and intent, that the director doesn't stray too far from the source mat material. Now, If Beale Street Could Talk is a deeply feeling movie. In fact, you could say that the entire theme of the movie is human feeling, uh, a cinematic attempt to to relay and grapple with what another human being is enduring. That seems to be what James Baldwin was attempting to do in the novel, at least to my mind. So in that sense, it seems faithful indeed. When you approach something almost as sacred as Baldwin's work, what do you think your job is? Uh, to remain faithful, for sure, or uh, to honor the text. You know, I, I talk uh, sometimes about an aesthetic contract, and mm -hmm. I think uh, when you work in adaptation, and it's interesting because these last two films are both adaptations of tremendous writers. Uh, to me, um, when I'm adapting, uh, I just want to find a way to honor the text. You know, the feeling that I originally had upon reading the piece, I want to try to find a way to translate that into sounds and images. And I think with this book um, in particular, I think it is extremely faithful. I think we took a lot of our visual, uh, emotional, thematic cues from uh, the, uh, the evocative nature of Mr. Baldwin's writing. Was there anything in that uh that intimidated you? Oh, I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, I've, I've admired and worshipped uh, this man's work for so long. And it's interesting, when you're doing an adaptation, uh, remaining faithful does not mean that you allow the author, the source material, to dictate, you know, the, the moods, the, the tones, you know, the pr propulsion, uh, the new medium that it's going into. So it was very, very challenging, you know, because I had to, at some point, come to terms with the, the fact that James Baldwin is not making the film. Mm -hmm. And the way that crystallized for me was, the book is more or less James Baldwin's perspective, but the film is Tish's perspective. Excuse me. So, um, you know, once I hit on that, I could sort of not step away from the shadow of James Baldwin, but 
it was very clear that I was the one making the film. Tell me why you chose this novel. I know you have said that other Baldwin novels even spoke to you more keenly. The the uh, I think you said Giovanni's Room was mm-hmm. the first one you'd ever read. Um, so why why choose this one over Giovanni's Room? Um, you know, this one there were a few qualities about it that I really uh, really loved. One, the time period was very interesting to mm-hmm. me. Um, you know, I'd seen uh, films set during this era. Um, that I thought were quite evocative. You know, there's a movie called Uptight, another movie called Claudine. Um, and so when I read the book, you know, combining the era with this depiction of two young black people um, as soulmates, and they're so very clearly, when you read the book, and I hope, hopefully when you watch the film, it's clear they're soulmates. I just hadn't seen many depictions um, of young black people in that way. It's very pure, lush uh, romance. And at the same time, uh, this novel, more I felt like than any of the other novels, really paired this idea of a romance, sensuality, uh, romantic passion, um, with just as passionate, you know, a uh, critique on society, you know, and the ways in, in, in which, uh, you know, American society, American government, the judicial system, uh, the way that weighs on the lives and souls of black folks. And so the fusion of those two things, these two Baldwins um, and this narrative, um, that was what grabbed me about this one. You ready for this? I've never been more ready for anything in my whole life. You know I love you. No matter what happens. I'm yours in your mind and that's it. You and me all the time. Honey. There's something I gotta tell you. The novel has the feel of both almost mythology of tragedy and, a, and, a, and also a very modern cry from the heart. There's a political timeliness to it as well. It has this awareness that, which obviously black people have always known, and that the white world is perhaps finally coming to accept the sense that the criminal justice system is systematically racist and that as a mm-hmm. country we can't move forward until we deal with that. But the film presents it as a human tragedy, almost Shakespearean in its, in its form. Um, how did you decide how to balance the scales on that uh, to, to make it seem politically relevant and also timeless? Um, you know, I think, one, it's all due to the source material. You know, I think, you know, what was so powerful about James Baldwin was he spoke the truth. And I think that some of the things that were true of um, the state of the, ju- the judicial system, um, mass incarceration, and also just the, the daily, everyday lives of black folks, those things were as true in 1974 as they are in 2018. And so I think the source material um, had this very timeless quality in a certain way um, on both sides, both in the social critique and in just um, the purity um, of the romance. Um, for me, what was interesting was in making the film, trying to, as you say, balance those two things, You know, to not allow one um, sort of subdue or outweigh the other. Um, but then I realized that there's something, you know, you read the book and it does seem like a tragedy, um, but it takes 20 hours to read the book. And in mm-hmm. the interior voice, James Baldwin is explaining to you in a very eloquent way, you know, just why this is all so damn tragic. I think when you watch a film over the course of two hours, um, if it's so clearly a tragedy, then I think that becomes a, a very difficult watch. And so to me, um, reflecting the romance, the love, in this very lush way, um, was a way to sort of, I think, speak truth to the the direness of the experience, um, but to do it in a way that there was still hope and optimism. 
Yeah, it's interesting because um, when the novel came out, I know that reviewers saw in it what they wanted to see in it. And and the original New York Times review, Joyce Carol Oates called it ultimately optimistic. And I thought oh, like... Oh, ultimately <laughs> Ultimately optimistic. optimistic. And I thought, that's that's funny. That's She must have read a different book than I read. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, I, I've read that review and, and I love that you said it exactly. Ultimately optimistic. Yeah. Um, because the the film is a very faithful adaptation. Um, however, when you get to the end of the film, it veers from the novel um, just slightly. Because I wanted to take that ultimately out of the equation. Right. You know, I wanted to be very clearly um, grounded um, mm-hmm. yet optimistic. And so it's how we ended up at the place that we ended up. You know, I think that you know because the situation that uh, befalls Fani and, and Tish and this family is so mundane in a certain way. Um, it it makes um, everything surrounding it um, just feel almost in a way uh, tainted, you know, like these things are being um, weighed down, you know, by the horror, you know, of this very circumstantial tragedy that befalls the family. But I think what Mr. Baldwin was saying in the book was the way that we push through these things, the way black folks have somehow been able to survive um, since the dawn of our time in this country is through this idea of love, family, community. And I do think ultimately mm-hmm. um, those things are hopeful and and and, and uh, optimistic. Because Baldwin said something. Uh, there's this famous quote about him saying that every every poet is an optimist. Yes. But you have to go through despair. so much despair to to, to, to get there to feel yeah. that. Yeah. And uh, I guess that's why, to some degree, you you changed the the ending to a certain extent, or you made a coda. I didn't exactly. Right? I'll take that. And 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 that was so that it felt like. Can can you tell us a little bit? Like people were devastated by. Um, I don't know if devastated is the right word. And I'll put, I'll implicate myself. I was devastated by oh. it. You know, I think that it felt. Again, it takes twenty hours to read the book, two hours to watch the film. Over the course of those tw- twenty hours of reading the book, you're getting so much interior voice. And to have such a soft, and I think the ending of the book is a soft ending. Yeah, I'm speaking in terms of not optimism versus darkness i'm saying just in narrative bent it's a very Mm -hmm. soft ending um i think because of that um the impact especially with 20 hours of reading behind you is a bit blunted in a certain Mm -hmm. way but when you watch a film um that very softness because it's at the end of only two hours for some for whatever reason it just really knocked me down it was like a gut punch Mm -hmm. and i thought that um a gut punch especially with what the family and therefore the audiences had to endure um, that it wasn't the way that the film needed to end. And so we came up with, I'll use your word, a coda mm-hmm. um, that I felt like honored the natural progression of the text um, and yet did inject, and because it's not in the book, this is me injecting something into the narrative, um, a little bit I felt like of grounded hope. But you often have the, ca- the, the characters look directly into the camera with these surprising, candid close-ups. There's so much emotion on their faces, uh, a kind of openness and honesty that's rare to see in a major motion picture. They, to me, they recall moments in life when someone realizes they're falling in love. Mm. Um, mm. Why were they important to you to include in, in Beale Street? I started doing these things, and or I say we started doing these things, myself and my cinematographer, uh, on Moonlight. And even on Moonlight, they were just random these little accidents um but moving into bill street we felt more confident um doing them um you know i think when you watch a film and especially with these last two films both being adaptations you know and this being the first english language adaptation of james baldwin 
uh, it's important to me to really create um, an immersive experience uh, for the audience. You know, and what I like to think of is when you read a book, you know, everything is in your head. You know, mm -hmm. you're hearing the voices in your head, you're seeing the faces in your head. Just all these things are in your head, and because it's all in your head, it becomes in some ways an almost more immersive experience than watching something outside you um, on a television. However, when you walk into a movie theater, now you, the theater itself is the head, and mm -hmm. you are inside it. Mm -hmm. And so if I can take the, the screen, the image, and all the speakers, if I use them all, then I'm surrounding you. I've placed you in the head. And at certain moments, I want to break the fourth wall and, and create what I, do, what I describe as radical empath empathy, mm -hmm. where now you, Jim Nelson, have to look Regina King directly in the eye. The idea of the artifice of, oh, I'm, I'm a voyeur, I'm just watching these people outside me. No, now she's looking directly at you, and that activates something. Um, Kiki, Kiki Lane, who plays Tish in the film, she was describing uh, these direct-to-camera moments as like mm -hmm. looking into a black hole, because <laughs> they don't see anything when they look into the lens. And as a director, I was kind of like, I, was, uh, I felt a certain kind of way, because you know a black hole is this thing that you, know, you send light into, and none of the light is allowed to come out. It's destroyed. And I was like, I'm not trying to take your light. And she said, well, but when you're acting, it's giving and receiving. You know, I give to one actor, they give to me because we're looking at each other. I go, and now you're giving to the audience, and they are forced to give back to you. And so um, when we do them, we're not sure where they're going to go in the edit. I have no plans. I don't even know when we're going to do them. It's sometimes I see that the actor has sort of like reduced the barrier between them and the character, and now they're all... Just one, it sounds so hippy-dippy. Um, <laughs> but when those moments happen, I feel like now the audience can really directly access um, the emotions of the character. And so um, I don't know that we'll continue to do them, um, but I felt like for this film in particular, especially having read the book so many times, I wanted to look Tish, Fani, Sharon directly in the eye. It does have that sense of the quality of the novel of unflinchingness. Exactly. And and you do it when you're you're doing it on set. You're just like you feel the moment and you say, "Hey, yeah." And, and, and it's come over here. Let's no, let's go into the black hole. Legitimate. I don't call it the black hole, but <laughs> I do. I I turn. I say to James first to to ask him, "Is there enough light? You know, is yeah. there enough time?" Because because I don't know where these are gonna go. I have to be responsible as a director, and I can't just do them willy nilly like all the time because half of them just get thrown in the trash um, yeah. because it's such an awkward thing for the actor to do. Um, but yeah, sometimes I'll be standing on set and you watch a scene. They always happen at the end of scenes. Mm -hmm. And you can just tell the actor is just there. You know, mm -hmm. there's just complete honesty and openness. And again, that's when I want to grab that honesty and openness and give it to the audience. And so we don't plan them. And I don't know why the actors keep agreeing to do them because I just spring them on them. Um, but every time, well not every time, the times where it works, you just get this raw immediacy. I was thinking about how the very first movie I saw of yours, uh, A Medicine for Melancholy, it oh. looks like a black and white film that has color sort of stricken mm -hmm. out of it mm -hmm. and then put put back in at certain moments, depending on what the message is on the screen. Um, I remember in, in Moonlight there being very specific color palettes for each three chapter. Mm -hmm. This one is really lush and sumptuous. Uh, do you are you thinking about that when you're when you're when you're putting this movie together when you're writing it? You know, it's funny. I've 
I've actually never really thought of this, but as you were speaking, I was thinking back to even my first student film, which was also made with James Lax and the same cinematographer on all three of those features. And it's like so like green and like, Mm -hmm. and sort of like cream and like it's all soft focus. I mean, to be honest, literally out of focus is all these flashes. Um, And then with medicine, you're right. The movie is incredibly desaturated. And I haven't really thought of it, but I guess this idea, not color, not color science or color theory, I can't say that, because usually it's just we're responding to an emotion, but it is something that James and I um, put a lot of thought into. And I think each film has a different sort of sch- schematic it's, it's working on. You know, medicine is colored the way it is because of how the character Micah feels about San Francisco, that yeah. amongst us people, they're trying to reduce the color, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. But it wasn't something we arrived at intellectually. We were literally watching the film and just started draining color out of it. It ended up where we ended up. So, yeah, in Moonlight, each of the three chapters has a different, what they call a LUT. Hmm. So there's a completely different color science to each chapter uh, of Moonlight that's meant to reflect the emotion of the character. And in Beale Street, um, in our earliest pre-production, myself, James, the cinematographer, uh, Mark, our production designer, and Carolyn, our costume designer, we would get together kind of in a room like this. It was like Mark's living room. We would drink wine and have cheese and just pass around, you know, all these like reference photos, you know, uh, color swatches, just all these things. And what we realized was over the course of like six weeks of doing this, of having these drunken salons, (laughs) uh, we started to understand that Beale Street wanted to be told through uh, Kiki, through Tisha's perspective, in that her and Fani are kind of in purgatory in a certain way. You know, he's awaiting trial. She's got to bring this child to term. And so whenever she's thinking of these moments, um, uh, from the past, you know, or from the time before this new circumstance, those things are memories, you know, mm-hmm. and memories are not beholden to any sort of like actual uh, grounding principle that's rooted in reality. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, oh, we're going to go with her. And these moments are going to be as lush and vibrant, you know, as a young girl's memory will allow them to be. And so that was how we ended up in the color space on Beale Street. Wow, that's so, so cool. I want to hear a little bit about um, how you write your screenplays, your process. Um, apparently, it involves going to Europe and sitting at really awesome cafes. I mean, it, it used to. I don't know. It's funny. I can afford to now, but I, don't know that I, I can't the afford to make the time. Bohemian lifestyle? Uh, you know, it, it kind of was. You know, the producer on both Moonlight and Beale Street, Adela Romansky, uh, in the summer of 2013, she just she said, what do you need to do to write? Um, these scripts and I said oh I need to I need to get out of the country and not have any friends and have just like a little money so I can like get a nice apartment she's like alright cool and I think she came up with like $8,000 and so I took an $8,000 six week trip uh, to Europe which is actually not that bohemian it's actually if you live a, if you live the right way kind of plush uh-huh. and um, and yeah um, I used to write everything by hand like every script before uh, Moonlight and Bill Street was written by hand Uh, These were the first two scripts I just typed directly into the computer. Um, But I remember going overseas, and, you know, when I went to film school, there was this this, uh, cafe that opened up in Tallahassee, Florida called Java Heads. And uh, they made amazing coffee. And I would always get a stool in the front window and look out on the sidewalk. And that was how I wrote, you know, my first, my second uh, short films. And I don't know, but those habits kind of stick with you. And so now, whether it's Europe, you know, Mm -hmm. or New York or San Francisco, wherever, I think sitting in the front window of a cafe with a laptop or a notebook is like, it's heaven, you know? I don't know what it is about that, and coffee, I should say. <laughs> uh, coffee or whiskey. I don't know what it is about that, but it just opens my mind in a certain way. You wrote both Moonlight 
and Beale Street in a stretch of uh, an incredible stretch of time. Was it the same trip? It was the same trip in the summer of 2013. I took a, a round trip ticket uh, to Brussels, and I was in Brussels for about 10 days and finished the, the first draft of Moonlight. And then I decided I'd never been to Germany. I wanted to see Berlin. So I took a train to Berlin and got an Airbnb there. And then four weeks later, I had completed the adaptation of Bill Street. Man, that is the most productive $8,000 trip I've ever heard of. Yeah, yeah but, but you know what, though? I've, I've been thinking about this. You know, I didn't develop as a human being at all. It's like six weeks of my life, which is not a lot. You know, I'm 39, so six weeks isn't that much. But, but did being out of the country, I mean, obviously you had that habit in, in Tallahassee of sitting in a cafe. Mm-hmm. But you're also looking out at Tallahassee. I don't know if it's as inspiring as Brussels and or Berlin. You know, it, I, I gotta say it was. It, it was because you know I grew up in a place so far removed from Tallahassee, uh, Florida, that everything just seemed just so new. I mean, looking back on it now, yeah, Tallahassee is not New York City. You know, mm-hmm. it's not even Brooklyn. Um, but I do remember being there. Um, you know, having grown up in the projects of Miami uh, my entire life, just being like, oh, this is kind of different you know I don't know why but I just get um an activation from new experiences so no I would say sitting in the front window of Java Heads was actually exactly like sitting you know in the window of Lord Byron in Brussels did you know as soon as you had finished Moonlight in 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 this cafe did you did you how did how did you know it was done when do you know you you know it's funny with that one I just knew I I and it's I was writing so fast I remember I was sitting I know exactly where I was when this happened I was sitting in Lord Byron they had made me my little shade tree Manhattan and I was like working for like maybe two and a half hours and then I got to a point and you know the cursor was hovering and I was like oh I don't think there's anything else to type I had finished Mm -hmm. the scene um, where little is on the shore and he looks back and I was like damn, I think that's the end. And I, I look back at my files. I wrote uh, Moonlight where I wrote the first chapter as a separate script, the second chapter as a separate script, and the third. So it wasn't that I could see that I was on page you know, 199. I was only on page like 35. But I was like, oh, I think that's done. And I actually hit the key. I was like, and then I ordered another mat. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I want to take a quick break here to thank Moëde Chandon. As you know, because you've been listening, Mad Influence features personalities and performers who shape our culture, focusing on moments that have mattered most to them. We explore artistic breakthroughs and the hard-won discoveries that have helped forge legacies and define careers. The stuff, in other words, that's worth celebrating. So it's fitting that this season of Mad Influence is presented by Moëde Chandon, who has stood for celebrations for over 275 years. As we examine the ingredients of some pretty unforgettable creative careers, we're grateful for the support of the world's most loved champagne and for their encouragement to celebrate life's memorable moments. I know with the original play that Moonlight was based on, um, the three characters sort of interact on stage, right? Mm -hmm. And in the movie, you made it very discreet, three separate uh, sections. And in fact, you didn't have, as I understand it, the actors ever meet what were you trying to avoid or solve for there? You know, I think it was one of the themes of, uh, of the play to me was how radically distinct this kid is from each period of his life, each phase of his life. And to me, implicit in that was that in the intervening years, the world had shaped or reshaped this guy um, so aggressively that he almost became a different self. And so to me, the visual conceit um, was going to be 
that, and this is a very difficult thing uh, to pull off, or at least I acknowledge that it would be, um, was that even with a completely different physical embodiment, even with no visual markers that tell you this is the same person, that two things would happen. One, you could look in that character's eyes and somehow still see that the pure, the young, the innocent, the, the, the core of that person was still intact. You know, that you can get to the last chapter and see Trevante Rhodes and somehow still see that kid, Alex Hibbert, who plays him in the first chapter. To me, actors just naturally want to want to find a way to uh, as immediately access the character as possible. And so for Trevante, there's no doubt he would have wanted to meet Ashton and Alex, mm -hmm. you know, and really get a feel for them and incorporate some little tick or something like that. But I thought, to me, the magic trick of it would be, no, you really are watching a completely different person, but it's the same soul. And so to me, the best way to accomplish that was to keep them completely separate, um, but, you know, hopefully uh, find this quality in their eyes. And then it's cinema, so we can frame them. We can literally mm -hmm. film them in a certain way that helps the audience connect the three actors. For, for me, what sticks with me about Moonlight are these polar opposites of emotion, really, really, and, and of human behavior. On the one hand, a kind of bullying brutality that is hard for any young gay man growing up in those circumstances to avoid. And on the other, this, like, human acceptance love, tenderness that is hard for many men to, like that to find. But there was also the sense that, that by putting those emotions so clearly and authentically on the screen and having the main character so hardened by his experiences, so numbed by the armor of masculinity he has to carry around that he never really allows himself to be an intimate with another person. Mm. The sense that you were trying to put forth, it seemed to me, a different message about masculinity. As, as a gay man watching Moonlight, I so appreciated seeing that on the screen. Mm. But in the end, we don't know if the main character allows himself to open up, to fully accept his sexuality, or live the life that you know he wants so badly. Was that your way of saying not so fast? This isn't an easy, happy story? Yeah, to me, not so fast is the, the very uh, clear way to crystallize it. You know, the ending of the play, you know, and the ending of the film, um, uh, are both a, a bit open, you know? Yeah. I mean, t I mean, the ending of the film is literally open, yeah. uh, for sure. Um, but it felt like, yeah, not so fast. I just felt like the evolution this character was now going to begin going through uh, was going to be one, you know, it's taken, I don't know, I think 27, 28 years for him to get to this point. You know, I feel like it's gonna take a few more for him to get to a place where he's actually, like, grounded and assured of who he is. Um, otherwise, it'd be like another, I don't know, hour of film, you know, it'd yeah, be like yeah. a, a chapter four, you know, with now the 42-year-old Chiron, you know, <laughs> right. who's, uh, who's who's dating on, on, on Tinder or something. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, it was, I think that to me, again, the, the thesis for that film was just showing that this guy was the same person at his foundation and that somehow, you know, with the help of a friend, with time, that he could get back to um, the, the person that he is. Um, but I think to go further uh, would have been just too fast, as you said. But were you mindful of showing a different form of masculinity on screen? You know, I, I wasn't mindful of it because it's I, it wasn't something I went into the film intellectually understanding that we yeah. were doing or, or as an intellectual objective. Um, but I think uh, part of uh, both Moonlight and Bill Street is they are adaptations. And yeah. so in a certain way, I feel like I was gifted with this depiction of masculinity that didn't conform uh, to the standards, you know, that we're used to engaging. Um, and 
part of it is I've got to give credit to the actors for sure <laughs> for I think through uh, being able to access so much vulnerability just inherently uh, depicting a masculinity that is different than the normative depiction that we're that we've become accustomed to seeing so um, I, I wish I could take credit for that um, as a goal or as an objective um, but I think it was in the source material yeah. and the actors were all willing so is that wrong? What you, what you looking at me like that for? What, man? Come on, you just drove down here? Yeah. Like you was just, you was just on one, and you hit the highway. Yeah. So since this is a podcast about long creative productive careers and how artists figure out uh, ways to persevere and to break through. You you had a period where after the success of your debut film, Medicine for Melancholy, in 2008, you didn't make another film for eight years. Yeah. And and I now I know you wrote adaptations during that time. What were you focused on then? Were you frustrated with the industry? What, what can you tell young artists, directors, and creative types what you learned during that period, whether about perseverance, breaking through, or, or whatever other qualities helped you get through that period? Yeah, I think I was frustrated with myself more than I was frustrated with the industry. I mean, you know, as a young guy who had made such a low-budget film, you know, I felt like I'd hit the jackpot, you know, I'd won the lottery. Um, but because of that, I felt like many things were going to be given to me. And I wasn't working in a way that was anywhere near as personal uh, as the way I'm working now. Um, I think because of that, it showed in the work. You know, it's interesting. I actually learned a ton about the industry, very productive things uh, during that time. Um, and yet I wasn't working on anything that was as personal as Bill Street. You know, I wasn't working on anything that was as personal as Medicine for Melancholy. And I think what ended up happening was I was just kind of spinning my wheels, you know. Mm -hmm. I think that there were so many talented people in this industry, so many there are more, there's an overabundance of talent, you know, and not enough places for that talent to be channeled. And I took for granted, you know, that I was just one of many. Apparently you, you wrote an epic about Stevie Wonder and time travel. <laughs> that sounds incredible. Why wasn't it made and will you make it now? Because um, I gotta I see that. You know, I don't know why, yeah, well actually, I know exactly why it wasn't made. I think I, I wasn't, I wasn't good enough, you know, to, to get it made. You know, that was actually one of the more productive things that came out of that period. You know, I developed that project. And, you know, it's a it's a fun concept, mm -hmm. I think, for the guy back then who wrote it, you know, and who had only made Medicine for Melancholy. It was too big right. um, of a concept for me to pull off. Um, I've actually been sort of digging through the old drafts uh, of the script and rereading them. I understand exactly why um, it never got made. Um, but you don't know why, you know, you never know, man. Well, it sounds like you were you were figuring out um, how to become a personal storyteller. Exactly, but 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 not even that. You know, I think I'd gotten away from uh, being a personal storyteller. Like I was yeah. saying to my friend here, you know, in college, literally as a nineteen-year-old, I would just go sit in the windows uh, of cafes and write, and all these really uh, evocative things would come out of me. You know, and then with the same thing with Medicine for Melancholy, the film. You know, that sort of got me the access to develop a project like the Stevie Wonder Project. Um, you know, it was made in the same way. It was written in the same way. And so I think in a certain way, I, over those five, six years between medicine and deciding to write Bill Street, um, that I just got away 
uh, from the personal brand of storytelling, the personal kind of storytelling um, that made me fall in love with the medium in the first place. I want to talk briefly about the next project. You're working on an adaptation of Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad mm-hmm. uh, for Amazon, right? Yep. Super exciting. And, and the book is is beloved in ways that, for a contemporary contemporary novel, oh, almost conjures Baldwin. It's, it, yes, well, why am I putting myself with this again? Is that the question? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because people feel attachments. Um, yeah. they, they almost have a sense of ownership to the books they love. Mm-hmm. And they want fidelity to those books. But that isn't always practical or wise for an adaptation. So how did you approach the almost sacred glow of the Underground Railroad in adapting it? Uh, you know, Colson's a really great guy, you know, and when I sat down with uh, with Colson, you know, he was very clear that there were, like, these in-between spaces that he didn't mind us um, exploring. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, because the source material is so rich, you know, it's one of those things where you want to go, oh, you know, just, you know, like it's like you're moving and you pick up the china. It's like, just be careful, you know. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. You don't have to like do anything, anything else to it. Um, but I think Cora's journey is so massive, and I think it was why, you know, it was uh, a very clear choice to me that it would not be a two and a half hour feature. You know, yeah. it would be you know a nine, ten hour um, series. You know, to give us the space, you know, to really dig in and mostly get everything right that the book gets right, but also to try to find those places where because it's going from one medium to the next, you know, how can we take this and and just take it to another place, you know? How can we really um, utilize everything that's possible um, in translating this to sounds and images? And so um, it's been a really cool process. I mean, same as the last, same as Bill Street, where you have this amazing author and this amazing book, and you kind of want to go, you know, just don't fuck it up, you know? Um, But at a certain point, I have to take possession of the piece, you know, and and do with it as I please. Like if Bill Street could talk, the Underground Railroad has the... uh Similar structural flexibility and radicality to yes, it. Yes, it does. It has. It also has a lyrical, dreamy, and sometimes non-chronological way of telling the story. Have you figured out whether, and probably since you're in production, you have. Um, I don't. I don't even know if it's already in production or finished. Mm-hmm. But whether you'll tell that story largely chronologically, because with the book's whiff of magical realism, you c- I could imagine a stricter chronology might help. And how would you deal with the magical realist uh, side of an actual underground railroad? Do you hope that it'll play as a realist drama or something more surreal? Because when you read the book, you almost forget that there was no actual railroad. You 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 give into that moment and you and 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 you you give into the fantasy and the hopes for salvation that it promises. Well, you know what I love about uh, this book, reading it for the first time, is it kind of took me back to being a kid. And the first time I heard about the Underground Railroad as a kid, I imagined trains running underground. So there's almost this like fable. Uh, like quality to it, you know, to the magical uh, surrealism, I like to call it, uh, with this book and with with most of the th- most of the things that Colson writes. You're right; there are some cr- chronological things that are very flexible yeah. um, in the book. And what I'll say is, um, where that's landed us, you know, myself and the writer, the writing team that I assembled, um, was this really great process where you know this is almost it's a hero's journey in a certain way, and that wants to be A to B to C to D to E. But then in between each of those alphabets, there is all this space. And I think we're going to venture very deeply into that space. And maybe those things will be uh, chronological. Maybe they'll conform to uh, the diction of the book. And then sometimes maybe they won't. Well, I'm so excited for that um, and excited for the world to see if Beale Street could talk. 
Barry Jenkins, thank you for coming to the Mad Influence. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for listening to Mad Influence. I want to tell you about a special offer for listeners who maybe aren't yet GQ readers. You can sign up for a one-year subscription to GQ for only $10 by going to gq.com forward slash Mad Influence. One word. Plus, if you subscribe today, you'll get the GQ Weekender duffel bag. It's amazing. No promo code is required. Thanks again for listening, and if you liked what you heard, leave us a review or a comment on iTunes. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.